You're listening to Something Real with Pastor Rich Zeiger, connecting the reality of God to the realities of life. On today's episode, we are staying in Luke chapter 4 and talking a little bit more about how the temptations that Jesus faced from the devil were actually something real. See what I did there? And how we still face those things today and how we can use the word to fight against them. So we're picking up with the same text that we were reading last week. And as we looked at Luke chapter 4, the first part of that chapter, uh, Dr. Luke was establishing this, uh, the beginning of of this narrative of what Jesus does and teaches in his earthly ministry. Uh, He spent the first three chapters establishing identity and introducing Jesus and John the Baptist, and more specifically uh, with John the Baptist, introducing the gospel of Christ that that would be set up. And in Luke chapter 4, having just come out of uh, the the establishment of the humanity of Christ, in his genealogy, tracing his bloodline through Mary back to Adam. Now we see Jesus in his humanity being tempted by the devil. And it's interesting to see how that all all plays out. And while Luke's point is primarily uh, to establish as part of the foundation of the faith, the reality that this, uh, this Messiah, Jesus, is the sinless son of God and son of man, because only a sinless savior could save a hopeless sinner, we see now that there are a lot of practical things that we as Christ followers today can draw from this, that we can can learn about Jesus, and, and perhaps more in a practical sense, the example that he sets for us. Uh, Luke's point here is not the example of Christ, but the journey of Christ, the the uh, the qualifications that he has as Savior, but along with it throughout the Gospels, and we see this in all four of the Gospels, there is also the example of Christ. He came primarily as our, uh, as the theologians would say, our penal substitutionary atonement, uh, that he came to pay the price for us to set us free. But at the same time, he is the Word of God, the living embodiment of God's heart and will. And so uh, as Jesus lives, he does provide for us the example of how to live for God. So without further ado, I'll read the text from uh, Luke 4, verses 1 to 13. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil had led him up, uh, the devil then led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. 
Jesus answered, It says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. As we look at this narrative and what Jesus uh, is facing here, uh, he's being tempted in three specific areas that uh, are pretty all-encompassing. And as he is uh, facing this, there's not a moment's hesitation and i find that very interesting because clearly there was a draw there was there was something in this that the devil was calling upon uh, that would provide jesus the opportunity to sin and yet ultimately despite the fact that he's you know starving literally starving with hunger uh, and is physically exhausted and mentally and emotionally exhausted there's no part of Jesus that is willing to give up the greater for the lesser. And while Satan keeps promising these things that sound great, they're really less than what Jesus already knew the promises of God to be. So because he knew the promises of God and he knew the commands of God, and he's quoting uh, from Deuteronomy in all three of these instances, As Jesus relies upon God's commands as life-giving and he rests in God's promises as greater than anything the devil offers, he's able to remain stable even in a face-to-face confrontation with Satan. And that is super practical for us. In in 1 John 2, 16, John, uh, the beloved, the the same uh, one, the same apostle who writes the Gospel of John, is describing the things of the world and uh, he's just gotten done saying if anybody loves the world the love of the father is not in them he says all the things of the world the the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life all of these things these are are contrary to the love of god and his his point here is that these three general areas encompass so much of what we're dealing with that this reliance on the temporal, on the now, on the flesh, is antithetical to the love of God. So we need to die to self. That's what Jesus said over and over again. We need to die to ourselves. We need to take up our cross, embrace the abandonment of all that is me and now. Not to say we don't enjoy this life, but we don't, we don't see the purpose of our life as enjoying this life. The purpose of our life is to live for God's glory. And so then as we enjoy each thing that we enjoy in this life, we are doing so for his glory. Uh, John Piper uh, speaks of how to drink a glass of orange juice uh, for the glory of God. It seems silly on the surface, but the reality is there's so much in every tiny act of life to, to recognize God's hand in. And when we do, then we can be filled up with him. The reason that Jesus is able to withstand these temptations in what seems to be without a hitch, I mean, it's, it's, we know there's no sin, but he doesn't seem to even be dragged away and, and particularly enticed by it. He is enticed in the flesh like the rest of us because he has that human nature. That's why we have the genealogy in chapter 3 to to make sure we know that. He's not resisting this by some supernatural uh, divine trait of of his deity. He's resisting the devil's temptation as a human 
with the same resources available to us, the Word of God and the presence of God. And so as he uh, rests in this intimacy he has with the Father and is led by the Spirit, he's so filled with the truth and reality of who God is that there's no gap, there's no crack for the devil to get his fingers into. And while the devil may grab hold of him, he's he's singular in his devotion to the Father, his desire to please God. And because of that singular desire and that constant focus that has been 30 years in the making, it didn't start here in the wilderness, 30 years in the making, he's been meditating on the Word of God. He's been bathing in the presence of the Father and the Spirit within him. And as Jesus does this, we too can do this. It's interesting that you know we're looking at this New Testament passage, but it seems to speak very clearly of, of the same dynamic, the same principles we see in Psalm 1 in the Old Testament. And I'm going to read this, these first three verses from Psalm 1 out of the New Living Translation. I like the rendering of this. David writes, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They're like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. There is a picture of stability here in this psalm. And he gives a contrast to the wicked. And what's interesting is the, the clear contrast between those who are described as wicked in the psalm and, and the, uh, the ones who delight in the law of the Lord. This is the, the difference. The contrast isn't some innate genetic difference between them, but one type of person delights in God's law fills themselves up with him, meditating on that law, hungering for more and more of that. And because of their hunger for God, they find satisfaction in that. And they're so filled up and content in what God has given them that there's no no room to be hungering and thirsting for anything else. One of the, one of the beautiful parts that we can see here, and maybe the most important aspect for us to recognize in battling temptation is that contentment nullifies temptation. When I'm already fully satisfied, I'm not tempted by something else. When I'm content with what I have, I don't covet other things. We often will will turn around and focus on the behavior rather than on the internal state. But the reality of the Christian hedonist's creed that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him is exactly how Jesus handles this temptation. He quotes the scripture, but not because the quoting of scripture is some magic incantation, but because his heart has already found a resting place in the word of God. The more filled up we are with God, the less room we have to be tempted by the devil. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune into our Something to Talk About portion of this particular subject on Thursday, and then we'll follow it up with the sermon that gets a little deeper into this subject on Sunday. So we'll see you guys next time.